Well, we do celebrate Easter next week. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are. Because as we celebrate Easter together or Resurrection Sunday, we gather together to celebrate the high water mark of the Christian faith. It is our celebration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over sin and the grave. He has conquered our greatest enemies, reconciled us to our Creator, guaranteed us through faith in Him life everlasting. Beloved, it doesn't get any better than that. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing that Christ has done for His people. I don't know about you, though, but uh, the news of late has been somewhat discouraging. You uh, turn on the uh, cable news channels, you uh, troll the internet news sites, you uh, read your favorite blogs, and, uh, and what you see, what you're reminded of on a pretty regular basis now is the, is the forces of militant and aggressive secularization are making very big inroads into this culture and into the church. Even uh, so-called Christian organizations are not immune from the onslaught that we're currently enduring. I read somewhere uh, lately that, uh, that the veneer of Christianity has now been ripped away. Those who thought that America was a Christian nation now realize that that is not true. The veneer has been torn back, and what has been exposed is really decades, and uh, I would even suggest a century or more of dry rot that has infected both the church and the culture at large. We are reaping what has been sown. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 39. And we're going to pick up this morning's passage here in the end of 15, in verse 39, and with it transition into chapter 16 and verses 1 through 12. This is another confrontation passage. A confrontation passage. Jesus will engage in another confrontation with the religious authorities of the nation of Israel. Well, the confrontation that we're going to look at this morning is going to be unlike any other confrontation that we have seen so far, and there have been a number of them to be sure. Because this confrontation is with an official delegation from Jerusalem who have come to Galilee to put an end to this rabbi, to this one who has gone about teaching and preaching for the last 18 months in and around Galilee and has made no end of a nuisance of himself to the local religious authorities. So they are going to come and they are going to, to confront him and, and in this confrontation we are going to to see the sort of the official end of the Galilean ministry. It's over once this confrontation ends. We're also going to see the spiritual vulnerability of Jesus' disciples, which is, could be very disheartening at this point in his public ministry. He is now in his final year, less than 12 months to the cross, and yet his disciples are not ready to face what they're going to face. As we look at the passage together, there are, there are lessons for us, and, and I think the first lesson, maybe the biggest lesson that I want to focus on as we go through the passage together is, is the warning for vigilance. There is a strong warning of the need for vigilance in both believing and protecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a simple, simple outline for us this morning, really just four words. I'm calling them four aspects of Jesus' confrontation 
with the Jewish authorities. So you can trace the outline with these very, very simple words, four of them. Number one, first word, conflict. First word, conflict. It begins in verse 39. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Now this closes out chapter 15. It acts as a, as a transition verse from the account here at the end of chapter 15 that we looked at last week, the feeding of the 4,000. That was that amazing miracle whereby Jesus fed 4,000 Gentile men plus women and children making known and available to the Gentiles the ministry of Messiah. And when this miracle account has ended here in verse 38, we are told simply by Matthew that Jesus dismissed the crowds and then he got into the boat and presumably his disciples got into the boat with him and they traveled, it says, to the region of Magadan. That is, they crossed the Sea of Galilee from the southeastern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and they proceeded in a westerly, northwesterly direction, and they arrive at a, at a place, an area called Magadan. It lies on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It, is, it is, lies between Tiberias in the west and Capernaum in the north, so it lies essentially in the northwest corner of the sea. Now, He's evidently not long. Now he's back in the, inside the territory of his, of his nation. He's back in Israel. The he, feeding of the 4,000 occurred outside of the nation of Israel. He is now back inside his homeland. And, and we don't know how long, but, it, but the text kind of indicates to us not long is he back there before he is confronted by Israel's religious leaders. And this was no uh, local group here that's going to confront him. This is a delegation from Jerusalem. And they have, they have come up to Galilee and they, and they have come in their official capacity to squash this nuisance, this annoyance, this man who is, who is seeking to disrupt Judaism. Now, Jesus, as you, as you read the gospel accounts, there, you know, there's confrontation after confrontation, and, and, and you've got to believe he's growing weary of these things. They, they, are, they are no small matter. Spiritual confrontation uh, is a very draining kind of activity, and, and we sort of get an indication of that. Um, Mark tells us in the parallel account of Mark chapter 8 and, and verse 12 that when Jesus is confronted here, by the, the group that comes from uh, Jerusalem, that he sighs deeply. Kind of interesting. He sighs deeply when, the, when they confront him again. And, and I think he sighs because he's weary. He, he is tired of these things. He is tired of a nation that is continually uh, locked in hard-headed unbelief and opposition to the work of God. So let's take a look at the confrontation the conflict here, beginning in verse 1, chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is a, this is a unique confrontation. It's been sort of a, a building confrontation, and, and what makes this unique is, is that it is a combined delegation. It is... Pharisees, we're told, and Sadducees who now approach Jesus. And what makes that sort of stand out to us is that there's uh, long-standing animosities and, and, and deep disagreements, even hatred, between these two groups of religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Sadducees do not play well together. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. They think the other person has, has distorted uh, Judaism. They are theologically miles apart. They are philosophically miles apart. Their opinion of what it means to live as a good Jew in a Gentile world are very, very much opposed to each other. And so you have these two groups. 
Now the Pharisees, just a, a little, you know, a little background, the, the Pharisees themselves are separatists. Okay, they are separatists. What that means is, is that they, are, they have separated themselves off from culture. They are, they are theologically conservative. They held to doctrines such as the bodily resurrection, the judgment to come, the existence of angels and demons. So you can say it this way, they were supernaturalists. They were also strong predestinarians. That means that they believed that God was sovereign and predestined, not just religious matters, but the affairs of mankind. They held that God ruled over the sovereign, or sovereignly ruled over the affairs of men. They saw the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, as the word of God. So, so far, you might say, gee, sounds like kind of a nice group. Where do I join, right? You know, the doctrine seems in, you know, to be pretty much okay. The problem becomes is although they, they held the Scriptures, the entire Old Testament canon, from Genesis to Malachi to be the Word of God, they also held to oral tradition. This is where the problem comes in. They held to oral tradition. That is the, the tradition of what they called the elders. And that is they believed that God not only spoke to Moses and what was written down, but God also spoke orally, and, uh, and that continued to accumulate. God spoke to his people orally, and they built up this, uh, this uh, tradition of oral interpretation and revelation, which ultimately uh, superseded the word of God as the final source of authority. They left the scriptures behind, although they said they believed the scriptures, and ultimately they went with their oral tradition. And a few weeks back, I don't remember how long ago, we, we looked at that when it came to the whole issue of, of caring for your parents and so forth. So, uh, theologically in the right place, but, but methodologically they had, although they gave verbal assent to the word of God, they had a separate authority source. And beloved Listen, whenever there is any authority source that is put on an equal with the Word of God, it will only be a matter of time before the Word of God takes position underneath that other source of authority. General revelation never is to trump special revelation, but if you put the two side by side, it inevitably happens that way. And that's exactly what has happened among the Pharisees. Now, were they a big crowd? No, not really. They were somewhat few in number. Josephus says about 6,000. They were dispersed. Josephus by themselves was a Pharisee. They were dispersed throughout the land of Israel, and they exercised their influence through the local synagogue system. So the synagogues in the villages was the domain of the Pharisees. By the time of the New Testament, their, their religious expression was built on a foundation of tradition, leading to externalism, and ultimately to hypocrisy. To hypocrisy. Yet the Pharisees were very popular with the people. They were popular with the, with the, with the common people of, of Israel. Far more popular than the, than the uh, Sadducees. And that leads us to this other group, the Sadducees. They are much smaller in number. They come from very wealthy and politically influential families. Their turf was almost exclusively Jerusalem and primarily the temple. So the Pharisees are spread throughout the synagogues, throughout the land. The Sadducees are concentrated in the capital city of Jerusalem, primarily in the temple, and, and they are the priestly class. They are the priestly class. The Sadducees were theological liberals. They emphasized man's free will. They rejected the, do the doctrines of the bodily resurrection, future rewards and punishment, angels, demons, and the kingdom to come. So they were anti-supernaturalists. They were materialists. They were liberal. They accepted, interestingly, only the first five books of the Old Testament. So they accepted only the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as being the word of God. But they didn't really believe that either. 
They didn't really believe that. They were very, very unpopular with the common people, and the reason they were unpopular is because they oversaw a corrupt system of temple worship, a sacrificial system in which the people got ripped off, and the ones doing the ripping off were the Sadducees. So they were making merchandise of people's religion and getting wealthy doing it. So here you have, in verse 1, two natural enemies. Two natural enemies. So what in the world would bring them together? And I think the answer of what brings them together is their common hatred of Jesus. Sort of, a, you know, an enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. And so they have, they have made common cause. They, they have agreed to, to put aside their profound differences because there is someone that they, that they need to deal with that it presents a, a represents such a, a, a threat to their system that they're going to combine together to get rid of him. And once they get rid of him, they can go back to squabbling and things will be hunky-dory just the way they like it. Now how they heard Jesus is back in the land of Israel, we don't know. But he's, he's evidently not there long before they show up, and, and they come, and they're, and they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to discredit Jesus, and they're trying to do it in front of the people. They want to, they want to strip the people away from him. They want to destroy his popularity. And so the way they do it here, in verse 1, it says that, the, is that they, they uh, attempt to trap him in a request for a, for a sign from heaven. All right, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came up to him and testing him or, or tempting him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, a sign from heaven. Uh, that could mean a number of different things, but one thing that it means for sure is that it's got to be spectacular. It's got to be spectacular and, it, and it's got to be undeniable. Something along the, uh, the line of the ten plagues of Moses, that probably would have, would have been something they would have liked to see. Something that, that, that God intervenes in, this, in this, uh, this incredible kind of direct way. And the, the insidious nature of what they're asking him for lies in, in the reality that they don't really want a sign so that they may believe. They want a sign so that he may fail to produce it so that they may then point and say, Aha, I told you, he is a false prophet, he is a false teacher, he is a, it is a false claimant as Messiah, and you need to abandon him. But Jesus replied to them, verse 2, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Isn't that an interesting response? You claim to be Messiah, give us a, give us a miracle, something good, you know, something, something undeniable, something, something from heaven, you know, you know, two or three of the plagues that Moses did, something like that. And Jesus just sort of ignores the request and, and goes right to the rebuke mode. He goes straight to the rebuke mode. You can kind of sense that he is wearied by all of this confrontation. This is a fruitless, pointless argument. He is not going to be drawn into it. He is not going to produce miracles on demand to, to, to satisfy skeptics who would never be satisfied anyway. He has given them more than enough messianic evidence to convince anyone. And so he is not going to, going to give into this. And, and so he doesn't even dignify their requests for a sign. He just turns around and rebukes them, and, and as we're going to see, he abandons them in their unbelief. So his response is to rebuke and then to abandon. And he, and he, does, he rebukes them, really, I think in an interesting way. He, he, he points out how spiritually dense they are. He almost mocks them, really. He talks to them here, right, verses 2 and 3. He talks to them about uh, uh, predicting the weather, 
Now, when I was a boy, my, uh, my dad taught me this expression. And I wasn't very old when he taught it to me. And it goes like this. It says, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Okay? Now, I was not a very, uh, very old when he, he taught me that little rhyme. And it simply meant this. As you, as you look into the, to the sky at the end of the day, if there are, if there are um, clouds gathering, then the likelihood of a storm the next day is higher. And so sailors, you know, be aware. You don't want to go out onto the stormy seas. If you see them in the, in, you know, at the time of the sunrise, then uh, uh, it's going to be a good day. It's just a simple uh, little, little rhyme, something even a small boy knows. And that's essentially what Jesus says, right? He says that when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be storm today for the sky is red and threatening. So it's, a, it's the same kind of just a sort of common thing that you would tell somebody, a, a child's knowledge of, of weather forecasting. And Jesus says to them, listen, you're, you can do this. You're, you're able to, to predict the weather, but you're clueless about the obvious uh, spiritual signs that are all around you. You are so hardened in your, in your unbelief that you, you fail to recognize the signs of the times, verse 3. The signs of the times. Kainos is the, is the Greek word here that is translated times, and, and it refers to a fixed period of time. Not, uh, not to, to a general passage of time, but to a, to a fixed period of time. The, the idea here is um, you could say that it's equivalent to the divine program. You're, uh, you can predict the weather like a child, but you have no idea about God's fixed program that is unfolding right in front of you. You have missed the signs. What signs? What signs did they miss? Well, here's a couple to think about. They've, they've missed the sign of the appearance of the forerunner. Right? The forerunner, John the Baptist. When John came, the, the, a delegation went to him. It's recorded for us in John chapter 1. I'm not going to turn there. But, but a delegation went to John and said, uh, you know, who are you? Why are you baptizing? Are you Messiah? No. Are you, are you Elijah? No. You know, well, well, who are you? Why are you doing this? And he takes to himself Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, the words of the forerunner, and, and he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. They have missed the sign of Messiah's forerunner, long predicted in their scriptures. They've missed the, the sign of the miracles that Messiah has performed in their midst. For example, in, in chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus says to them, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is saying to them, that the very miracles that I do point to the reality that, that I am Messiah and that I am offering the very kingdom of God, the, the long-awaited, long-forecast messianic kingdom with all of its blessings, I am offering them to you. But they're blind. They've missed the sign of, of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 26, where he speaks of Daniel's 69th week. 69th week in, in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. And it's a prophecy of the coming and cutting off, that is the, the ultimate death and crucifixion of Messiah. And it begins with a fixed historical point, which is the command to rebuild the temple. It was given by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. We know that for a fact because Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 8 says that very thing. So they have missed the sign of Daniel's 69th week. They should have been doing the math and they would have known. So they've missed these signs and, and others. Yet they're pretty good at kind of figuring out whether it's going to rain today. Jesus says that in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them 
and went away. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any more signs. You're done. You're evil. You are adulterous. That is meaning that you are, you are unfaithful to God. This entire generation represented in its leadership. Sadducees and Pharisees. You have set yourselves against God. You have sent yourselves against his Messiah. No more evidences for you. No more signs for you. The only thing that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. That is the sign of the resurrection. The next sign that Jesus will perform in the, in the, in the um, presence of these skeptics is his greatest miracle of all, which is his resurrection. His resurrection. It will be by his resurrection that Jesus will vindicate all of his claims as to being who he says he is. It is by virtue of the resurrection that Jesus will be installed by God the Father as the sovereign Lord of the universe. It all comes down to the resurrection, which makes it so amazing that next week we gather to celebrate that very event. Look with me in the end of Matthew's Gospel in verse 28, and you can see what I'm what I mean here. Jesus says in Matthew 28 and verse 18, this is after his resurrection, during the 40 days before he returns back to the right hand of the Father. He's meeting with 500 or so of his disciples on a mountain. And he came up and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When was all authority given in heaven and earth, given to Jesus? It is at his resurrection. Acts chapter 2, where Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he, he's talking about the resurrection. And he says in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which he is installed as the reigning monarch of the universe in whom all authority rests in both heaven and earth and by which he then gives his marching orders to his church to go into the world and make learners of the nations. And the leadership of Israel you will see nothing more from me until you see that great sign. Now, how does the nation respond to the sign? Well, we know, right? A remnant was saved, but for the vast majority of them, even if someone should come back from the dead, they will not believe. And they don't. Verse 4, and he left them and went away. And he left them. The word translated left them here, it's a strong word. It speaks of abandonment. In fact, you could translate it that way. And he abandoned them and went away. He is gone. He is going to withdraw from Galilee. Right after this, we're going to read, they get into the boat, they cross over 
the Sea of Galilee again. They leave the territory of Israel. He will ne- or, or Galilee rather. He will not come back to Galilee again, except for one short private visit that Matthew will narrate for us. We'll look at it. He'll return to the to his uh, town of Capernaum for for just a short visit. But other than that, he is absolutely done in Galilee. He will not come back to Galilee until he has risen from the dead. He has abandoned them. And that has incredible theological significance. They're hard-hearted. They're unbelieving. They're malicious. They're vicious. And he is done with them. He abandons them. First aspect is this conflict. The second is Concern. Concern. Verses 5 through 7. Following the conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they get into a boat and, and they cross the sea. They're on the western side of the sea, the northwestern corner of the sea in Magadan. And now they get into a boat and they cross to the east. And they cross to, to the area of Bethsaida. There's going to be a, just a little discussion here, and, and then they're going to, they're going to move on. And, and it's possible the discussion occurs in Bethsaida outside the boat, or, or Mark seems to indicate it occurs in the boat. So I'm not sure whether the discussion here is in the boat on the way over, or just as they get out of the boat once they get to the other side. But they're, they're going to land in Bethsaida, and they're going to leave from Bethsaida, and they're going to head due north outside of the land of Israel again. Now, on the way across the sea, after this this, uh, conflict with the delegation from Jerusalem, Jesus is very concerned for his disciples, and he is concerned to warn them about the implications of the conflict that just occurred. But the disciples are oblivious. They are absolutely oblivious. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. In fact, what they think is Jesus is upset with them because they forgot to bring supplies for the journey. Right? Verse 5, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. How easy, you know, for us, right? We're, we've got the whole story, you know, 2,000 years removed. You go, these guys, what rubes, you know, what, what in the world is going on here? Right? They don't get it. They don't get it. They think that when Jesus is talking about leaven, that they think that he's concerned that they, that they forgot to bring lunch. That that's the biggest problem. Mark says they actually have one loaf of bread with them. And, and the image here, I, I think, is, is sort of the, they're, they're in the boat on their way over, and this is what they're talking about, and, and they're sort of accusing each other. You know, who, who forgot to pack the cooler? It was your job. No, 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 no. I, I did it last time. It's your job. You know, and so here they are. They're pointing fingers at, at one another, and they're accusing each other about you forgot to bring something to eat. And now the master is, is mad at us. He's lecturing us. How spiritually dull, right? How spiritually dull. They are, they are preoccupied with their own material needs. They're, you know, they're, they're worried about their next meal. They, they, are, they are ignorant of the spiritual reality of, of the conflict they just witnessed. That Jesus has gone toe-to-toe with a delegation from Jerusalem of, of the two power bases of the nation of Israel, and he has refused to even enter into discussion with them. He has, he has insulted them and rebuked them and turned on his heel and walked away from them. And they don't get it. Jesus is very, very concerned here. Very concerned. And he's concerned to to warn them about this invisibly growing spirit of rejection. 
the invisibly growing spirit of rejection. That's what the leaven is that he is talking about. This, this spirit of rejection is going to eventuate in his crucifixion. And he needs to prepare the disciples to meet the test when it comes. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be what? Scattered. And the sheep will be scattered. And they're not ready. They're not ready. I mean, from their perspective, things are still going well. Yeah, he's had a few dust-ups. But, you know, things are going well, right? We, it was just a matter of a couple days ago when, when thousands of Gentiles flocked to hear him and, and he healed them and he fed them. And, and it was only a few months before that when, when thousands and thousands of, of Jews from Galilee came together, right? 5,000 men plus women and children and he's healing them and he's, and he's preaching to them. And at the end of it all, they, they want to take and make him king, John tells us. John chapter 6. This is a pretty good deal. We are on the messianic tour bus, right? We got, the, we got the political campaign going. We got whistle stops. You know, we'll just periodically we'll stop. Jesus, you do your, your miracle gig. You make some food. You heal a few people. The crowds are enormous. And, and we'll ride this bow wave all the way into Jerusalem. And when we get there, by the way, and you bring your kingdom then, uh, you know, which, where do I get to sit? You know, do I get the right? Do I get the left? Whatever. That's what they're thinking about. We know they're this dense, by the way, because it's only going to be a matter of a couple of days, and, uh, and they're going to be uh, up in, the, in the, the foothills of Mount Hermon. And uh, Jesus is going to speak to them openly about his rejection, and his coming death. And their response to that is, is going to be shock, right? Chapter 16, we're in 16, so it's, you know, flip the page or not, but, but verses 21 and 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What an amazing, huh, what an amazing statement. Peter says, Jesus, let's get something straight. You're wildly popular. And, and, and you can do miracles. Whatever miracle you need to do. And, and they're ready to put a crown on your head. What are you talking about that you're going to die? What are you talking about? Snap out of it, boy. Things are going well. Jesus knows. Palm Sunday is followed by Good Friday, right? They're going to, he, Jesus knows he's going to go into the city to the, to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. They're going to they're gonna throw their cloaks in his path. They're, they're going to cast down palm boughs symbolizing Israel's uh, nationalistic in, uh, uh, aspirations. He's going to ride into the city in triumph it's going to be a religious, it's going to be as much political as anything. They're going to gather to him. And a few days later, the same crowd is going to yell, we have no king but Caesar. Right? Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. He knows it's coming. And they cannot see it at all. They cannot see it at all. They're concerned for their bellies. He's concerned for their souls. At least to the third word, critique. Critique. Verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have 
no bread. Men of little faith. It's, it's one word in the Greek. Allegapistoi. I love the word. It's a compound word. It contains all the English words in one Greek word. Little faith men would be a literal translation. It's used by, uh, uh, by Jesus a number of times as recorded in Matthew. It's actually uh, used four times. Every time it's used, it is, it is a criticism or a critique of the disciples because they have prioritized mere, um, a material concern higher than their faith in the, while they were in the presence of Messiah. So they are in the very presence of Messiah, and they are worried about their material, physical needs. For example, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30, they are concerned about clothes. Right? Matthew 6, verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith, you little faith men? Don't worry about your clothes. Chapter 8, verse 26. Lord, verse 25, they're in the boat, right? Lord, save us, we're perishing. 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. They're afraid they're going to drown. And he says, what is wrong with you? I'm in the boat with you. Well, what if he's not in the boat? Well, chapter 14, verse 31. Jesus is outside the boat. You know, someone said, what's, uh, what's more scary, having Jesus in the boat or outside the boat? They're both scary. Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he, Peter became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And here in chapter 16 and verse 8, because they forgot their lunch. They got nothing to eat. Nothing to wear. Probably going to drown. Definitely drowning right now. Don't know what I'm going to eat for the next few days. Sounds like legitimate concerns, right? And Jesus says to them, what is wrong with you? Why is your faith so tiny? Why is your faith so tiny? Verse 9, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's wrong with you guys? You have been with me. You have seen the amazing creation of food. I took a little boy's lunch and, and, I, and I made food enough to feed a crowd approaching 20,000 people and they had so much to eat they were like a hog that had been stuffed for slaughter and there was baskets of food left over. And then a few months later, I had 4,000 Gentile men, plus men and or women and children. I don't know, 15,000 if you like. And I fed them too. And they were so stuffed they couldn't eat another bite. And there were seven large baskets left from that. And you guys are worried that someone forgot the cooler. How could you possibly... How could you possibly think I was upset because you forgot to pack lunch? What is wrong with you? You have missed it. You have, you are, you have missed it. You, you, you have seen the miracles. You have eaten of the miracles and, and you have missed the lesson. Your belly is full. 
Your head is empty. Little faith men. You could put your, you could put your faith in a thimble and there'd be plenty left over. Plenty of room. This is a serious critique. They have failed to grasp the most simple of lessons. That is that, that Messiah will provide for them. He will meet their needs. That, that's the, that's the, at least the base level message of the, of the miracles of feeding, right? I mean, if you don't get anything out of it other than that, recognize this, you're not going to go hungry. There's much more you should get out of it, but, but that at the bare minimum you ought to have. And if you don't get that, then there's no way you're going to grasp the, the, the metaphorical teaching that lies behind the miracle. And, and beyond that, you're no way you're going to understand the danger that I am talking about with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One writer says this, and I think he hits it on the head. Quote, he says, at the lowest level, they, that is the feedings, showed that he could miraculously supply food so that the disciples had no need to worry. But they also added to the growing evidence for who Jesus was, for the source of his authority and the nature of his mission. And then the writer says this, it's time for them to put two and two together. It's time for them to do the math. There is no excuse for this kind of unbelief, for this massive failure of faith. None. Again, I can only imagine. I can only imagine what the, what the man Christ Jesus must have kind of been thinking and what's, what's going on? What is wrong with you people? What is wrong? You need to get your acts together. This thing's coming to a conclusion soon. The train has left the station. I'm not going to be with you that much longer. You need to start getting it together here. You've got all the evidence you need. It's time you start processing it in faith. This is a serious critique. He's not happy. Not happy. Leads to the fourth comprehension. Whew. Right? Comprehension. Thank you, Matthew, for inserting this little editorial for us. Mark doesn't do it. Matthew tells us. I don't know, maybe that's because Matthew was the one struggling the most with it. I don't know. Then they understood that he did not say, beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven. Just a, a small lump of the, of the prior day's bread dough. It has has leaven in it, right? Leaven is an, is, an, is an active living organism. And you would mix into your bread dough, the new batch, you would mix a small lump from the old batch that contained leaven, and you would give bread the time for the leaven to, to begin to disperse through the bread, right? And, and the leaven moves invisibly, the, the leaven moves quietly, and the, and the leaven moves irresistibly or assuredly throughout the entire bread dough, and it, and it begins to, to leaven it, and it begins to rise, and you punch it down, and, and it rises again, and, you know, I'm telling you how to make bread, and half of you already know. The other half don't care. But the point of the matter is, is that leaven is irresistible. Once introduced, it will do its work. Leaven is in, invisible. You can't see it doing its work. You can see the result. You cannot see it doing its work. Leaven is quiet. It doesn't blow a trumpet and say, I'm leavening the dough now. It's just happening. It 
and to work so that every single part of the loaf is leavened. That's common knowledge. So, the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is just like leaven. It is spreading in the nation. You can't see it. It's invisibly spreading. It's quietly spreading. But know this. It is most assuredly spreading. And it will come a day when the entire nation will have absorbed this false teaching. You think this was a unique event, this, this confrontation, this conflict that I just had in Magadan with the, with the delegation from Jerusalem? Do you think that's just like some random event that just occurred? Are you kidding me? It won't be long before that confrontation characterizes the entire wicked and evil and adulterous generation until they all reject me. Bing! Oh, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. What is the false teaching? For the Pharisees, they, they have molded the kingdom of God to conform to the tradition of the elders. They have taken the, the, the message of the kingdom of God and they have conceived of it in their own way, in their own terms. That is, that it, that it is they control it. They are the gatekeepers of it. And it comes through their oral tradition, their externalism, and its fundamental characteristic is hypocrisy. And Jesus says exactly that in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. Jesus preaching is a threat to their self-satisfied system of religious externalism. That is leaven, the, the preaching of the externalism, the teaching of the externalism. The idea that you're going to be good with God, God's going to be satisfied, happy with you, based on you keeping a set of rules that you yourself have made up. Your own righteousness. You can talk about being theologically conservative and believe in predestination and we believe in the life to come and the resurrection from the dead and the spirit world and we accept all the books of the Old Testament, you know, the whole Bible, we're, you know, we're, we believe all of that, but you don't. You don't. What about the Sadducees? Well, they, they have rationalized the kingdom away. They say it's here now. It's all, it's all right here now. We're in it, and we control it, by the way. And, and, it's a, and so Jesus is a threat to them. They are, they are smug in their own religious system, a system built on wealth and power and worldly success. And along comes the rabbi. The itinerant teacher from Galilee, the carpenter, didn't go to any of the right schools. And, and what does he say to them? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and I am the king. And if you want to be made right with God, then you must repent and you, and you must have faith in me alone. I will rescue you from your sin. Well, that goes over like a, you know, a load of bricks, huh? Beloved, it never, ever fails to amaze me. This time of year, as I just think about this, I think about the speed and the intensity with which the crowds turned on Jesus. As we, you know, this is Palm Sunday, right? We're going into the Passion Week. Think about it this week. Read, read the gospel narrative of the, of, the, of the Palm Sunday, right? Of the triumphal entry. And then you just think about how does it change so fast? How does it go from, from an adoring throng to a murderous mob in a matter of just a couple days? The answer is the, the insidious nature of this false teaching, this unbelief, has done its work. 
It's done its work. When Jesus enters to the temple area during the Passion Week on Monday and Tuesday, there is a series of confrontations he has with the religious leadership. He, he rips it wide open and he makes it absolutely known who they are, what they are, and the system they represent. And he sends the people home to think about it. And he sends them home to say, basically, do you want me or do you want that? And at the end of the week, they come back and they say, give us that. Give us that. The nation is preoccupied with the material and the temporal. They are smug in their own traditions. They are, they are closed off to the message of redemption. They're called to choose between the word and the world, and they choose the world. And all around us, all around us, we are watching the collapse of cultural Christianity. We are watching it. And the speed with which the collapse is proceeding is staggering. Absolutely staggering. But it's been a long time in the making. It's been a long time in the making. False teaching Worldliness, materialism have been like the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have been at work in both the church and society doing their destructive work for a long time. A long time. Jesus' warning here to the twelve needs to resonate. It needs to resonate with you and I. God help us. Not to be oligopistoi, little faith men. Intent on our own temporal needs, oblivious to what's going on around us. Beloved, the cure, if you want to call it a cure, a cure for the, for the collapse of cultural Christianity is not to retake the levers of power. It does not lie there. It is to be found one soul at a time as men and women and boys and girls come under the lordship of Jesus Christ believing the resurrection of the dead. Believing that Jesus himself conquered sin and the grave and that he offers the life of the age to come to any who will embrace him by faith alone. That is the only answer. It is the Easter message. A message we need to preach. A message we need to believe. A message we need to live. May God help us. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, when we read of this account of the staggering spiritual dullness of the disciples, it's like a cold slap in the face. Because when we're honest and evaluate our own hearts, we, we see dullness there. Our Father, we speak of the Word of God, the, the inerrant and authoritative, fully inspired in every part and place Word of God, the supreme authority for life and faith. And yet how often when it conflicts with what we want to do, what we desire to do, that we abandon the Word of God and go with our own tradition. Oh God, how often do the allure of this world, the, the material prosperity that, that we're awash in, dull our, our perspective? Cause us to, to spend so much time and energy arranging deck chairs on the Titanic 
as if we are in the kingdom now. How often are we willing to look the other way and to say, it looks good from here? When all around us, men and women, boys and girls, are sinking ever deeper into the depths of despair and sin. We have the answer. We have the answer. Our Father, as we meditate upon the Passion Week, as we think about the events of those days, we arrive at Friday, the death of the Son of God, and Sunday, the, the glorious victory over the grave. Father, you help us to believe the truth, to live the truth, to speak the truth. And may you have mercy upon our neighbors, our families, our friends, that they might come to see and believe that Jesus is Lord. And it's in his name we pray, amen.